Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. And welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am here with the author of a absolutely stunning new novel that just really floored me. Um, yeah, let's get right into it. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Sure. And gosh, that thanks so much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Josh Roundtree. Uh, the book is The Legend of Charlie Fish. Uh, it's from uh, Tachyon Publications, and it comes out in July. And the the shorthand that I I sort of uh, went into this with is it's um, the creature from the Black Lagoon set during the uh, Galveston hurricane of 1900. Uh, that was the the worst natural disaster to ever hit uh, the country. It killed thousands of people. Um, and uh, when I was looking at ways that I might be able to fit uh, you know a gill man like that into one of my weird West stories, I thought, hey, you know, he would uh, he would like the uh, ocean, he would like the the, the shore, and it just kind of came together. It's such a lovely blend of um, of history and weird fiction, and it's just like it's so well done. Um, before we get into the book itself too much, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey to the book, because um, you mentioned before we started recording that you've written short stories and this is your first novel. Um, yeah, so you could talk a little bit how you got here and, um, you know, maybe perhaps how like writing short stories um, maybe prepared you for a novel or, or how it was different, perhaps. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I've been, I'm a big fan of short stories. Uh, that's, uh, as a writer and a reader, I, I would almost always uh, choose a short story collection uh, over anything else. And I've been writing and publishing short stories for uh, about 20 years. Uh, so I've had a, a quite a few of them out. I write in uh, a lot of genres, uh, you know, uh, horror, dark fantasy, science fiction, alternate history, uh, have just played uh, around a lot over the years. And I really like um mixing and matching and trying to combine those, uh, those together. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when I started writing, uh, back then, uh, the conventional wisdom at the time really was that, Hey, you know, you, um, you write a bunch of great short stories, you work to get them published, and that will eventually get you the attention of, um, you know, some folks that can help you get a novel published. And so, uh, that was sort of the, the, the writing path that I started following. And, um, and, and I've written, you know, quite a few uh, unpublished novels over the years and, and just had a lot more success with with the short stories. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually uh, along that way, I kind of realized that, you know, I like the short story uh, world quite a bit and, and I would be quite happy to keep writing those. And, and uh, you know, they're they're a great art form in and of themselves. And so, you know, I, I still think of myself largely as a short story writer. Um, all that being said. I, uh, I I got the idea for this one um, and decided it was uh, it, there was a little bit more meat to it and wanted to make it a novella. Um, I've been uh, uh, writing a bunch of stories lately that I think of as my old Texas stories. They're they're basically monster stories set in Texas from about 1830 to 1930, uh, and I've had a handful of those published in uh, short fiction magazines and anthologies. Um, and so this was uh, just me taking another stab at that, but I wanted it to be a bit longer. So I, uh, uh, I originally wrote this as a novella. And whenever I uh, submitted it to Tachyon, 
they really liked it, but they had some editorial thoughts on it. And so we I worked with them on that to expand it quite a bit. Um, and uh, ultimately it came in at a, at a novel. It's a pretty short novel, uh, but it, it did come in at novel length. So uh, from the time that I submitted that to Tachyon to the time that we actually got uh, the the published novel, uh, you know, as it is now, uh, it's about double the size that it was. Um, and, uh, and readers, whenever they, uh, they see that, um, know that the sections and there are two sections, basically there are two point of views there. They rotate back and forth between two major characters, uh, Floyd and Nellie. Uh, the Nellie sections did not exist when I first, uh, uh, submitted this. And so, uh, you know, much of the plot, um, is the same, but working with the publisher on that and bringing uh, that extra voice into it really, I think, uh, made a much better book. And the Nelly sections are actually my favorite. Uh, you know, she's absolutely my favorite character in there. Wow, that is so interesting. And I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated to hear that the Nelly sections were the expansion. Um, gosh, like when, so when you were expanding it, was the, um, did you already also have the time jumps in place or is that another part of the expansion? Yeah, the, the time jumps were actually in place. So I had essentially uh, everything that's from the, the point of view of Floyd written. So the, the story begins a few days before the hurricane that I mentioned. Uh, and then it, um, it backs up a bit to uh, tell the readers sort of how Floyd uh found his friends, I guess, if you will. So, you know, the, you know, we haven't gone into it, but you know, he, he finds a pair of orphans, uh, Nellie and Hank, uh, and they find, uh, Charlie fish, uh, along the way. And so I, you know, it, it sort of flashes back to discuss how, um, they all came together and then it moves into the actual, uh, days of the storm. Um, so all of that, just from a purely plot perspective, was there uh, at the beginning. Uh, and obviously the character of Nellie was there all along and, and her personality was there all along. Um, but when I wrote the sections from uh, Nellie's point of view, it really gave me the chance to kind of go in and figure out um, more about her, you know, learn more about her and Hank and uh, a lot of her sections, uh, a, a bit of the plot, I sort of shifted from the the Floyd sections over to the Nellie sections, but a lot of it is really uh, us learning about her family and uh, what she calls her whisper talk, which is uh, her sort of telepathic way of communicating with the world and, and uh, you know, how she connected with her, uh, her uh, mother and her mother's witchcraft. And so, uh, you know, these were things that uh, sort of uh, all those bits were hung on the plot elements early, but this really gave us a chance to uh, explore those characters a lot more. And, and uh, I, I think it, it, it's much better for it. Yeah. I really love the dynamic between all the main characters and it, it's, um, you know, in addition to all the other things it is, it's also like a really lovely story about like found family, you know, and how right. loss can bring people together to sort of like, um, you know, not fill the holes left by other people, but to help support each other through loss. And that's really gorgeous. I would love if you could talk a little bit about your uh, depiction of uh, Galveston at the turn of the 20th century, because it is such a very visual, visually evocative uh, novel. And the the description is so rich and really does so much of the um, 
like supports the storytelling in such a really lovely way. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like you are um, a Texan I've read, so you are there, right? So, but did you do research as well into the history of the place? Would you do visits to sort of like help you capture that image or? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I live in the Austin metro area. Uh, I am a, a lifelong Texan, so I've been to Galveston quite a few times. Uh, it's a it's a pretty popular uh, tourist destination uh, these days. Uh, and uh, certainly I read a lot about it. I, I've read uh, uh, several books about the the what they call the Great Storm, the hurricane of 1900. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of good books. One of the uh, the ones that's just uh, I think it's the best, really the most evocative is Isaac Storm uh, it's, it, by Eric Larson. Just a really, really great book about um, kind of uh, sort of the the technology for uh, predicting storms at that time and sort of the uh, the human folly that went into uh, that whole event where they, they, they probably could have gotten word a little bit better uh, through the town than they did, but uh, ultimately they did not. And so, yeah, if you, if you look at Galveston at the, at the turn of the century, uh, it was one of the largest ports in the U S it, it was definitely the largest port in Texas and certainly a more prominent city than like Houston uh, or any place like that. Um, and, and really it was on the cusp of being one of the, you know, one of the most modern cities in the country. It, there were, there was so much trade happening. It was, a uh, had a thriving tourist business, of course. Um, it, it, the city really exists on a on a barrier island off the coast of Texas, and so it, it you know it's a beautiful pay, uh, place to go. Um, and within a few hours, that storm basically wiped half the city off the map. Uh, the, you know, accounts in those days are hard to um, it's hard to to determine which ones are accurate, but you know most estimates say around six thousand people died. Uh, upwards of potentially 10,000 people died uh, over the, and, and it's um, it really just uh, changed the whole direction of that city. Um, at that point, uh, a lot of people became worried about, um, hey, can we keep this as our main port for the state of Texas? And so Houston uh, in the interim, uh, built a ship channel into Houston. And of course we know Houston now is a much, um, much larger place than Galveston. So, uh, but Galveston is a really fantastic place to visit today. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of things for kids, of course, the beach and, um, you know, you can take plenty of tours about the history of that storm and, and everywhere you walk in Galveston, there's a memory of it. You'll see, um, uh, buildings that have uh, placards on them that say 1900 storm survivor. And, and you'll go to different places in the city where they have marked, uh, this is how high the the water went at, at this hurricane and this hurricane. And um, after that happened, they actually built a, a seawall, this big concrete um, wall along the beach to turn away any future storms like that. Um, they had about a 17 foot a tall wall of water come through. And so in some places they built the seawall almost that tall and it necessitated them actually raising much of the city that high. So you'll go to, there are still mansions in Galveston that predate the storm, but now they're 17 feet higher than they used to be. <laughs> wow. My gosh. I always find it very interesting when, uh, cities sort of like visually, uh, depict like their own history that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I studied abroad in Florence and Italy uh, 
oh my gosh, a very, very long time ago. Um, but there's also like markers in that city about like when the river flooded and, and uh, you know, that's really shaped not only like, you know, the visual uh, or like the layout of the city as you're talking about, but also mm -hmm. like the, the collective memory of a city too, you know, it really becomes like a part of it. And I think that's something that this novel evokes so well, because the, the storm section in particular is just like, so the tension is so high and it's so riveting and it really feels like, um, like, uh, like very eyewitnessy, you know? <laughs> Thank well, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. It was, um, I really loved writing those descriptive passages and, and I love going to, to Galveston and just, you know, seeing how people st still experience that storm today. I mean, it's absolutely still part of the, uh, the collective there in Galveston, you know, you, you can't escape it. There are memorial statues, there are, uh, you know, plenty of tours that kind of tell the story of this happened here and this happened there. And, and so a lot of the places uh, described in the book, um, you can go there today, like the, the, you know, one of the prominent areas is called the Strand. Uh, and it's really this, um, this uh, long street kind of a, uh, along the bay on the north side of the, the island. And uh, they're all buildings built in the late 1800s. And they're, you know, uh, largely unchanged from, you know, what they were at the time. Uh, and and it, it's right now it's a little uh, kind of tourist area. There's shops along the bottom and cruise ships dock, you know, a hundred yards from where that is. So, uh, but you can walk through that section and, you know, you can, you, you can still see exactly what it was then. You know, one thing they mentioned are the high sidewalks uh, we talked about in the book. And that's uh, basically the sidewalks are several feet above uh, the streets. And that was so when water kind of flooded through the streets on a normal storm, um, it wouldn't uh, necessarily flood the, uh, uh, the buildings and those high sidewalks are still there too. Wow. So something that I <clears throat> am very curious about is when you are sort of, um, you know, adding the weird to a historical event like that, how do you kind of treat the event? Like, you know, so like, um, like we're, uh, like, where do you add the weird, you know, like, so are you um, cognizant to not like uh, contradict any accounts that already exist and add stuff beyond that? Or do you play with fact or like, what is your approach like? You know, I, I, uh, I try and keep any historical fact unchanged in, in this specific series of stories. I have done plenty of uh, alternate histories before where I kind of play with with those kind of things, but um, it, these handful of stories that I'm I'm writing, kind of in this in this uh, universe, and and they're 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 inter interconnected, really only in my mind. I don't think there's really that much connective tissue between them. But um, you know, I, I uh, read a lot of history just for fun, and so I, I typically try and be as historically accurate as possible. Um, I'm sure that I fail on that quite a bit, uh, but uh, most of the uh, you know all, all the uh, all the dates and, and everything with the storm are, are accurate. And I, I tried to get it as best as I could down to the hour. Cause you can, you know, there are enough eyewitness accounts that you can say, okay, it, uh, this happened at two o'clock and by seven o'clock it was here and by eight o'clock it was here. And so I, I really tried to, uh, to keep up with that as I sort of paced the storm and how it, it affected the characters. Mm. Yeah. It really conveys like the sort of, um, like just like the way that it sort of like 
it obviously is a, a very traumatic event, you know, and I feel like that is at play too, like in the sort of jumping around in time, you know, because that's how we kind of tend to remember trauma, you know, like we, mm -hmm. and when we were processing it, we go back and forth a lot and compare events and how we felt about things at different times. And so was that something that you were also kind of thinking of when you were breaking up the narrative and, and moving back and forth in time and all, or? I think mostly I was just uh, maybe trying to break up the tension a little bit and let the story breathe for a second, uh, you know, because it, it it's as it's as it starts out, it really kind of I, I wanted to set up the character of Charlie Fish and uh, sort of his arrival in Galveston as the beginning of the book and, and, and where we kind of meet all the main characters and we, um, you know, we get to the point where we're anticipating that there's going to be a storm and, and, uh, and, and all of this is set up. Um, and then, uh, I wanted to be able to kind of dig back into those and, and explain sort of how we got to that point, uh, before, uh, you know, we unleashed the storm. But when you get back from the, the flashback scenes, uh, it's that Saturday morning of the storm and already the swells are high and, 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 and it's, it's moving that way. So I, I, I think that's probably what what motivated that. Mm -hmm. It's cool how sort of, um, you know, just the way that you construct a narrative for tension then too can sort of, you know, have other effects. Because <laughs> I knew that when the storm hit, it would, there there weren't, uh, there were going to be no places to take a breath. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that point, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, you've pushed the boulder over the edge and it's rolling downhill and, and you can't stop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, could we talk a little bit more about Charlie? Because he's yeah. absolutely um, very endearing. And, you know, I'm always really interested in the ways in which, um, you know, stories will use the the non-human in order to sort of like investigate the humanity of the human characters that surround mm -hmm. him, you know? And so, yeah, can you talk about uh, what went into... Um, crafting his sort of persona as it is you know I love that you sort of encounter him through Nellie too because she's the one with the connection and so like you talk a little bit about yeah him and sort of what you are exploring in terms of like humanity and inhumanity and all that <laughs> yeah for sure and and I, I think that I think that's how he works well is exactly that he is sort of a mirror of what all the other characters are by way of how they think of him right so um, you can see, you know, the villains obviously are treating him poorly. Uh, Nellie quickly jumps to his defense and, uh, you know, Floyd is a little baffled and befuddled, but he kind of goes along, you know, for the ride. And so um, he really, I, I think, kind of is is there to sort of reveal what a lot of the other characters are. Uh, when I first started working on this, you know, I... I I was going to write a monster story and I thought, Hey, here's my monster. You know, he, he's going to rampage through this hurricane and, you know, he'll be the villain and uh, pretty quickly realized that that wasn't who he was, you know, so often uh, you'll start writing and, and you, and uh, I don't outline extensively, uh, but I have some pretty good notions of where a story is going to go. And so you, you'll, um, the the best tool you can have in your tool belt is is the ability just to say okay that's wrong let me figure out how to do it correctly and so as I started writing that I realized pretty quickly that Charlie was kind of goofy and funny and weird and um, you know I I fell in love with the image of him you know smoking a cigarette and puffing the smoke out of his gills uh, you know and um, 
but really when he started to connect with Nelly uh, and uh, you know, when people read the book, they'll see that uh, she really becomes closest to him because she has the ability to uh, sort of telepathically communicate with him. uh, Whereas others can't really speak with him. Um, And they find that they have a lot in common. Uh, And, 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 you know, it's one of those things where it was just kind of, as you're writing, it sort of becomes serendipity. It's like, well, okay. So Charlie is, homesick and he's lost his family and these two orphans have lost their family and Floyd doesn't really, you know, have a, a whole lot going on. He, 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 um, you know, had a, he was estranged from, you know, everyone that he had loved or they're dead. And, and, you know, ultimately uh, the found family just kind of comes from, from that, you know, and, and Charlie's kind of the linchpin that brings that together. Yeah. It's a really lovely relationship between all of them and watching it develop is just really a, a joy, you know, and I'm, I'm enamored of stories that like themselves love the monster. Like if that makes sense, you know, like some horror stories hate the monster <laughs> along with everybody else in the story, but some of them really love them. And I feel like, you know, that's something that like Guillermo del Toro does really, really well. I think for instance, like he right. loves monsters, you know? And so, yeah, like, I think uh, like, is that something that also like shapes your storytelling, like a love of the monster? <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, there, you know, there's no, uh, uh, no hiding that, that this is certainly influenced by creature from a black lagoon. And, and I love uh, all of those classic, um, monster movies. And, and so I, I've, I've definitely written my share of, of, of stuff where the, the monster is an actual monster and, you know, is the, is the villain, but, um, this one, you know, there, there are very clearly human villains and, you know, the, the storm is an antagonist, but uh, Charlie is, is definitely on the side of right. <laughs> yeah. Could you talk at all about the other stories that you're sort of imagining in this, like, not series, but let's say this project about like historical horror in Texas, like uh, what else are you working on? Yeah. So I, I've had um, a handful of stories published uh, Two of the ones that, um, Two, two of the primary ones. One of them is February Moon. And that story was uh, originally published in a magazine called Beneath Ceaseless Skies, uh, which is a great fantasy short fiction magazine. And it's basically uh, a werewolf story set in central Texas in the 1850s. And it's a German immigrant woman looking after her family um, after her husband and oldest son have gone missing. And uh, she's sort of under siege, not only by whatever is prowling the night, but also kind of the townspeople who aren't really great people. Um, and so that one I really love. And then I have a, a another one called uh, The Guadalupe Witch uh, about a woman who um, is enacting a spell to bring back her dead son. And so it, it's uh, those are those are two of the, the ones that um, that always kind of stand out to me. And both of those I reprinted in my uh, collection, uh, Fantastic Americana, which is a short fiction collection of a bunch of my older stories. Uh, but there are three or four others. So, um, you know, I, I have a, a few that I've I've written there and then uh, certainly working on some follow-up stuff uh, too. So, Awesome. Well, I hope that, you know, when this uh, follow-up stuff is also in the world, you'll consider coming back to talk about that too, because I, you know, as I said, I love this book so much and it's it's been a, you know, a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming to the show. I'd absolutely love to. And I really appreciate you, uh, you having me on the show and, and your kind words about the book. Mm-hmm.
No problem. Okay, listeners, um, I implore you to check out The Legend of Charlie Fish. By the time that you hear this, it will be available. It's, it's It'll be out in the world. So please go to your favorite library or independent bookstore, wherever you like to get your books. Um, yes, and thank you for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode. Thank you.